So back in 2021, there was a series that was played, played by Chris Pratt. You know this. It's a film series called Tomorrow War. Anyone saw that? Tomorrow War? It's about time travel and saving the world and all that kind of stuff. But in the 80s, if you were born before that, when I was growing up, we had that. We have Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. Anyone saw it? Back to the Future? All right. Back to the Future is also about time travel. But the question is, why are we so fascinated with the idea of traveling back to time or to the future? Because in between, in the 80s and 2021, there are series and multiple movies and films that have something to do with traveling to the future or traveling back past in time. The question is, why are we so fascinated with time travel? See, the reason is much sim simpler than you think. The motivation behind time travel is the desire to control time. This desire to control time comes from the ancient sin of Adam and Eve when they decided to eat the forbidden fruit and play God. They wanted to determine their future. That's the whole idea of time travel. Because there's a certain feeling of satisfaction, a certain feeling of security when you know your future. That's how insurance works. So you, you insure your life, insure your house, insure your car. If anything breaks down, you have a solution to the problem. There's a satisfaction in there. When you control something, it gives you a certain kind of peace. The reason why people go to palm readers and fortune tellers is to know their future. Why? Because they can correct their present by going to the future. That's the whole idea behind this one. See, here's the thing. If you can travel to the future to correct the present, you are potentially playing the role of God. And if you can correct all the past mistakes, you are basically playing the role of God. There's a reason why we are pursuing AI and all these advancements in science is because we want to solve the problem that we have today, the problem of death. If you can solve the problem of death, we cure the problem of Eden. That's why back in Arizona, there's a company called Alcor Foundation that makes a lot of money by freezing dead people's bodies, freezing them, and waiting for the time when the technology catches up to resurrect them from the dead. This is not make-believe. This is true. You'll find that in Scottsdale, Arizona. The goal is to defy death. The goal, if you think biblically, is to reverse the failure at Eden, their mistake. So the question is, do I have the ability to reverse the failure at Eden? I'm talking about the failure of Eden. I'm talking about death. Do I have the ability to reverse the failure of Eden? Today, I want to talk to you about Crisis, control, and consequences. Turn to your neighbor and say, crisis, control, and consequences. All right, turn, turn to the other neighbor that you don't want to talk to. Control, <laughs> crisis, and consequences. All right. Now, last week's sermon was about David. David was put in a difficult situation. David was trapped. He was trapped because he was asked to fight for the Philistines. And at the same time, his allegiance was still with Yahweh, so he was trapped. But at the last minute, God intervened on his behalf, and he was sent home by the generals of the Philistine army. And David, together with his 600 soldiers, went home. But instead of a welcome party, 
what they saw was their house, the whole town of Ziklag, burned to the ground, their families and their children gone and captivated by the Amalekites. The march of the Philistines, the march from the Philistine camp all the way to Ziklag, their hometown, was about three days. That means while David and his men were taking their positions in the battlefront, the Amalekites attacked the town of Ziklag, took all the women and the children and their belongings, and burned the whole town. So that when they arrived, the first thing they saw was ashes. And the first thing they did was to raise their voices and weep before the Lord. This is what it says in chapter 30, verse 4. Let me read to you. It says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Has that ever happened to you? Weep until you have no more strength left. Was there a crisis in your life or a sudden death in your family or a painful betrayal that caused you to, to shed your tear until you have no more tears left, until you have no more strength left? I mean, David had this. To the point that some of the men were too bitter and spoke of stoning David, their leader. Now, remember, these men with David were soldiers of David. They fought for David. They swore to protect David. David was seen as king of Israel. So these men were loyal to David. And yet, at the exact moment of pure bitterness, they spoke of stoning David. Why so? Because you see, the simple reason is that people aren't good at handling stress. What we do when we are stressed is we pass the blame to someone. We, we want to find the fall guy. Psychologists say it's part of coping mechanism before we reach the stage of acceptance. See, people who lose control will try to gain it back by shifting the blame, blame someone else. Adam did it. Eve did it. Pilate, when he washed his hands, he was shifting the blame before he executed Jesus. The whole idea is to maintain control. Now, David had no time to grieve. He had no time for self-pity. He had no time to blame. But what he did, because he understood control better, he went to, to that one who he knows has full control of everything. You'll find it in verse 6. For Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. So when people are stressed, the immediate reaction was to blame, and yet David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's what great leaders do. That's what great men of visions do. They, they, when they face with difficulties, they run to God. They find strength in God. They know the one who is in charge, and therefore they run to God who is in control. So tell me, what's the first thing you did when you found out that you or your loved ones had cancer? What's the first thing you did when you found out that your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse betrayed you for someone else? What's the first thing you did when you found that you are positive with COVID? Was finding strength in God the first thing you did or something else? Or maybe because this guy or that guy or blame someone else. See, David found strength in God. Without knowing what happened, how it happened, why it happened, he found strength in God. And then he consulted the Lord. He said, shall I pursue? And God said, yes. That's it. 
if you go through Samuel chapter 30, all you find was a yes, pursue. See, if you read this passage, when God replied to David, there was no, no details, no specific strategy, no visual representation or direction. There was no vision, no, no vision, no dreams, nothing. It's just a simple yes. And to David, that was good enough. And so he mustered his strength. He mustered the strength of all his men, and they pursued the enemy. The next thing you know, they found an Egyptian slave in an open country. They found out that this Egyptian slave was too weak and too sick to go anywhere. And it turned out that this man was a slave of the Amalekites that attacked Ziklag. But this guy was, he got sick and he was left behind by his masters. So with the help of this slave, according to the story, David found the enemy and recovered everything that was lost. That's the whole story. But do you know what that means? That means, if you recall the blow-by-blow of what happened there, that means three days ago, before the Amalekites attacked Ziklag, David was in the forefront of of the Philistine army. David was there. He was about to fight the Israelites. Three days ago, the Amalekites attacked Ziklag. That means three days ago before David went home. That means three days ago before they reached Ziklag and saw the devastation in Ziklag. That means three days ago before the men cried and wept and David found strength in the Lord. God has already already answered his prayer. God's prayer was advanced three days ago. What am I talking about? God's answer to his prayer was the Egyptian slave who got sick and was left behind. See, without this Egyptian slave who got sick and, and left behind, he wouldn't have recovered anything. He wouldn't have seen the enemy. It would have been impossible to find the Amalekites because the Amalekites are apparently a nomads. They move from place to place. It's impossible to find him. But because of this Egyptian slave, he was able to find the enemy. You know, we always say that God is always on time. In this story, God was advanced. I mean, he provided David, the Egyptian slave, three days even before he prayed for leads. Is this a coincidence? See, the Egyptian slave getting sick sounds like a random thing. It sounds like a mere coincidence. But is it? If you think about it, what are the odds of this guy getting sick, left behind, survive three days without food, long enough to be found in an open country. What are the odds? I don't think this is a coincidence. I think this is by God's design. I think this is how God answered David's prayer. What are the odds? The only way to, for this to make sense is if it was put by design. And the only way to make this sense is if that the one who designed it is a timeless person who transcends time. Someone who is timeless, someone who is not limited by time. When I was in high school, I learned about this guy who was genius. Um, he, was, he was famous for writing two novels, subversive novels. And because of that, he was arrested by the Spanish government. He was executed and shot in 18, uh, 1896. And then he became the national hero of the Philippines. He goes by the name Jose. He's not from Mexico or anything like that. 
He's from the Philippines. Sometimes he writes uh, anonymously by the pen name Laon Laang. I'm not sure if you know this one. And then his pet name is Pepe. Interesting. But his full name is rather long. Do you know his full name? His full name is Jose Protasio Rizal Mercado E. Alonso Rialonda. Anyone have that long name? <laughs> it's kind of long name. You see, every time the Bible speaks about God, God is a long name. Especially in the first five books of the Bible. He's the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Every time the Israelites talk about this God, he's the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. 500 years is the gap between Abraham and Moses. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he appeared to Moses and told his name. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a long name. But then he also revealed his personal name. His personal name is kind of short. It's Yahweh. In English, it is I am. What's your name? I am. It's interesting. But then this I am, what does it mean? Fast forward to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This I am rephrased his name and represented again himself. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. It says, I am the Alpha and Omega. It's another title, another name. Says the Lord God. This Lord God, who is now the Alpha and Omega, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the same God who appeared to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now his name is the Alpha and Omega. But he has a longer name. Who was, who is, who was, and is to come. The Almighty. This is interesting. What does it mean? That means God is eternal. God doesn't change. What he planned from the beginning, he still do. What he intends to do, he will accomplish. All his promises will be fulfilled. And if this God is eternal and timeless, nothing surprises him. Nothing is accidental. Well, that means if he's timeless and eternal, he can make the circumstances in your life by design. Whatever happened to you happened by design. There are no accidents in life. 1 Samuel 30, verse 18. It says, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoiler, anything that had been taken. David brought back all. And not just that, in verse 20 it says, David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. That's a bonus. Not only that David recovered everything that was lost, he also got bonus. He got the flocks and the herds of the Amalekites. You know, this text is, is kind of special for Pentecostal preachers. Sometimes I want to preach like Pentecostal preachers. You know how, how they preach? With the huh? Today, huh? God has told me something, huh? The word is huh? You know, Pentecostal preachers preach like that. And when Pentecostal preachers preach, they would say, I have a word from the Lord, huh? And God is telling you today, huh, that God will recover everything that you lost, huh? That's past the offering plate. <laughs> but I cannot do that. That would be misleading. Why? Because this text doesn't guarantee or say to any degree that God will restore your fortunes or will restore your health or restore whatever you lost. 
that the enemy took from you. This text doesn't say that. As much as we want to believe it, resist the urge. This text is about David. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about David. Who lost their families? David. Who did God say pursue the enemy? David. Who recovered everything? David. It's not about you. It's about David. The story, in fact, is not telling us to become like David. The story is, in fact, telling us about the true king of Israel who intervened in the life of David, who provided the Egyptian slave for him to recover, who gave strength and victory to David. This is about the God who is able to redeem, recover, and restore. This story is about God. It's not about us. It's not about you. What God is telling us today from their story are three things. I'm going to go Baptist today. I'm going to go three things. All right? First time in history. <laughs> All right, Baptists always go with three points. Three things that you can learn from the story. Number one, the presence of crisis is not the absence of God's control. The presence of crisis is not the absence of God's control. Crisis, you see, is a way of life. It all started as a result of what happened in the Garden of Eden. We had crisis, we had death, because this couple, Adam and Eve, failed in their calling. But although, Adam, although the Eden was lost, it doesn't mean God lost control of everything. You see, when you read your Bible, beginning from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, and you say, what is God saying? It's a testament of stories and poetry and epistles and letters that God is in control. The Bible said God is king and he rules. The Bible also says that Jesus is king and he rules. In fact, in the book of Revelation, John says that he will come back to judge the living and the dead because he rules. That means God is in control of everything. All right, number two. Crisis is not always a consequence. Let me say that again. Crisis is not always a consequence. This is a little bit complicated, so I'm going to take my time to explain this. You see, what happened, in, what happened to Israel in Egypt was by design. What happened to Israel in Egypt? They were slaves for 400 years. Was it their fault? The answer is no. Was it Joseph's fault that, you know, Joseph was sent there in advance because there will be famine? Was it his fault to be sold by your brothers? It was not his fault, but he was there. And he became one of the rectors in Egypt. He was the one who saved Egypt from famine. It was not his fault. Was it Jacob's fault that his families drove to Egypt to buy grains? It was not their fault. Was it their fault that they were stuck there for 400 years? It was not their fault. It was there by design. God has designed it that way. Crisis was not a consequence. In the same way, what happened to Ziklag was actually not a consequence. Was it David's fault that David was in the forefront of the Philistine army? That all his soldiers left and therefore it was attacked by the Philistines? By the Amalekites rather? The answer is no. It was not David's fault. In fact, David was in Negev, in Ziklag. Ziklag was in the Negev region. The Negev region was originally given to the Israelites as part of their original territory. In fact, David was doing the will of God. 
It was the failure of Saul to destroy the Amalekites. David was doing that, fulfilling that. So he was not at fault. It was not a consequence of his mistakes. The attack in Ziklag was not because of a consequence. What is it then? These sort of crises are necessary opportunities for God to redeem, restore, and recover. You see, there are crises in your life that have nothing to do with your past mistakes. Are you listening? Let me say that again. There are crises in your life that have nothing to do with your past mistakes. There are crises in your life that were there by design. And God has put there those crises by design. And what are those for? They are meant to preserve and prepare you for something greater. So give yourself a break. See, we have a name for it. We call it blessing in disguise. Right? Crisis is God's tool for preservation and preparation because you are designed for something greater. Believe it. David was designed to become king of Israel one day. And if he was designed to become king, he must have these moments to prove his real character for preservation and preparation. When David's soldiers suggested not to share the spoil, this is what David said in verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. What David is saying is that God has given and preserved. That's the whole point of this story. God has given and preserved. It was not because of David's military prowess or his sheer bravery. It was because God has given and preserved. It's because God is in control. This is all... Sorry. This is all about the God who designed crisis, not as a consequence of our mistakes, but necessary opportunities for greater blessing. Now, I want us to step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture. You must be reading your Bible, and you cannot make a sense of it because there's a lot of stories. Now, here's the bigger picture. When God prophesied to Abraham that his descendants will be slaves for 400 years, We know that it's not their fault. We know that it's by God's design. But also God said that they will come out of Egypt from slavery with great possessions. How did it happen? How can a slave nation come out of Egypt with great possessions? So the thing is that there were 10 plagues in Egypt because Pharaoh was stubborn. He won't let the people go. So the ninth plague, on the eve of the, sorry, on the eve of the 10th plague, The people of Israel were instructed to borrow gold, silver, anything that is worth from their Egyptian neighbors. And because their Egyptian neighbors were worried about the plagues, they give in to their requests. And so right after the 10th plague, Pharaoh said, let the people go, and he he let the people go. And all the Israelites came out of Egypt with spoils and plunder of all the treasures in Egypt, of gold, silver, and anything that's of value. They didn't even raise a finger. This was prophesied by the Lord to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. Now what's interesting here is that right after the 10th plague, God moved in the midst of Israel. You see, 1 Samuel chapter 30, our text today, sounds exactly like that. See, the Amalekites attacked the town of Ziklag. It, it was not David's fault. It was there by God's design. 
What happened was the Amalekites took all the women and the children and the spoils, their belongings, and brought them to the Amalekites' camp where there are herds of camels and goats and sheep. And because of God, because God answered David's prayer, he gave him the Egyptian slave, which led them to the Amalekite camp and recovered everything plus bonus. Verse 20, again, it says, David captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and this is David's spoil. See, the spoil was so great that David was able to share all the spoils to all his soldiers, to all his friends, and to the elders in Judah, to every town that he roamed when he was still in hiding. So great. That was bonus. To those of you who are uh, fans of Manny Pacquiao, Anyone? Give a shout out. Yes. Manny Pacquiao. By the way, Manny Pacquiao is a Christian. To those of you who are fans of Manny Pacquiao, every time he fights, it's always exciting and nerve-wracking. I've seen all the fights of Manny Pacquiao. Some people, they would prefer to buy tickets and go to Las Vegas to see him up close. Others, they prefer the live pay-per-view in the comfort of their own home. But Elder Edwin prefers replay. I don't know why. Here's why. Because his gentle heart cannot handle the stress. Anyone likes watching replays? (laughs) See, here's the thing. There's a difference between knowing Pacquiao won the fight past and if Pacquiao will win the fight, future. There's a certain sense of security, of peace and calm when you know that you already won future. You see, to Abraham in Genesis 15, when God prophesied that his descendants will be slaves in Egypt, to him it was not a tragedy because he knows that his descendants will multiply in Egypt, part of the prophecy, and will come out with great possession, part of the prophecy. To him, it was not a tragedy. To him, it was not a punishment for any failure. To him, it was by God's design. Are you following me? It was by God's design. God assured Abraham that his descendants will come out of Egypt in advanced, 400 years advanced. I'm going to give you the third insight. Knowing the outcome fixes our eyes not on the crisis nor on the consequences but on the God who is in control. If you look at the crisis, you will blame people. If you look at the consequences, you will blame yourself. But if you look in the God who's in control, if you fix your eyes on the God who's in control, you will see that everything is good. Beloved, we already know what's going to happen in the future. The future is no longer a puzzle to us. You don't need to go to any fortune tellers to tell you your future. You see, the veil of uncertainties has been torn down already. The reason why the last book of the Bible was called Revelation is because the future has been revealed. Revelation. Listen to David. I have three verses for you from David, from the Psalm. And he was talking about this uncertainty. And it was assuring us of this uncertainty. Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. 
He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Isn't it beautiful? That there's nothing to be afraid of because you know that God is our light and salvation. In another verse, in 118 verse 6, he said, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing, of course. There's no reason to be afraid. And still in Psalm 23 verse 4, which is more dramatic, he said, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Beloved, these are not just empty words. These are not empty promises. These are said. These are the promises of God to us. These are the fine prints that never change. These are the guarantees that we have in Jesus. Yes, in Jesus. Why do I say that? Is Psalm 23 about Jesus? You bet. Because Psalm 23 begins with, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Wait, hang on. How is God is my shepherd related to Jesus? Because in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for sheep. You see, Psalm 23 is, is about Jesus. It's about this good shepherd who is with us, whose rod and staff, they comfort us. What this means is that Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He's the shepherd who holds the rod and the staff. He's the shepherd who is with us. His presence is the reason why we can confidently say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's the reason why we can confidently say, even though I walk through the valley of sickness, through the valley of doubts and crisis, through the valley of sin and addiction, through the valley of financial difficulties, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will fear nothing and no one because you are with me. Do you see this? God is with us. He has fixed our life by design. Nothing is ever accidental. I dare you to pray this prayer. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you. We thank you for the privilege of listening to your word and being assured that you are with us. Sometimes we go to the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes we feel alone and isolated. Sometimes we feel so stressed about the worries of life. But yet, your word always assures us that you are with us. Sometimes we even look at our past mistakes and they haunt us, they bother us. Sometimes we look at the crisis that we have and we feel like these are consequences of our past mistakes. Father, teach us, show us, allow us to see that you are reconstructing our lives, designing our lives so that we are prepared and preserved for something that's greater. You told us in the book of Ephesians that we are your masterpiece, prepared in advance for us. These good works that we should walk into so that we can reflect the glory of there's the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, allow us to see that. Allow us that to sink in. And for us to understand that there was only one who has designed our lives, 
has protected us and guided us and preserved us and is preparing us, allow us to see, Father, that all these trials, that all these tests that we are going through, that all these crises are just preparation for something greater. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.